Okay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Michael. Happy birthday to you. I know I'm a couple days early. I've been ambushed. Oh my God! Uh, thank you. You're um, welcome. That's all I've got. <laughs> Don't expect a present. <laughs> that's that's that is that is delightful indeed. But by the time people hear this, it will have been a couple of weeks since my birthday. But at the time of recording, it's two days from now. I'm getting older, as one does. <laughs> older than me <laughs> by by like ten months. No, not even seven months. Something like that. We're both eighty. Oh, wait, we're both of a certain age. <laughs> Oh, I had the best tip from someone mm-hmm. about the whole, like, being embarrassed of your age thing. Um, she said, like, I I think she was nearing 40 when she started inflating her age. Like, instead oh. of claiming, you know, like, being 33 and saying she was 30, she was, like, 37 and saying she was 40. And she does this because then people, like, always remark on how good she looks. There's a certain wisdom to that. I'm not... I'm not ashamed of my age, but it's easier for men to get older. It's less of a stigma. But I am kind of like having small bits of existential panic about, you know, being slowly dragged towards the grave and my like my fingernails scrabbling at the dirt. It's like, <laughs> it's like no. Yeah. Well, you get to this age and you kind of realize you're past the point for certain possibilities, you know? Like, mm-hmm. I'm never going to be a ballerina now, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Not that there was much chance before. Door shut and all that, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're never going to be like 22 and backpacking through India now. Yes. I mean, you can be like an old travel person. Yeah, you can absolutely backpack through India at any point in your life. Yeah, no, I was talking with a friend at lunch, you know, our friend Micah, and uh, her mom and her partner, like, did this huge, I think it was a year, they were like going all through China, kind of backpacking. Yeah. And now they're doing this, like, massive hike up into the Northwest Territories. Yeah, and I am lucky enough that I have the freedom and the ability to have little adventures. I am, for my birthday, I'm not going to be in the country. I'm going to be in Vermont. Oh, exciting. Yeah, yeah, a bunch of us are uh, have an Airbnb rented, and we're basically doing... Because the Americans have a long weekend. So, yeah, we're we're basically going to have... um, three nights in uh, an Airbnb in, like, rural Vermont. (laughs) I should say that Martin is joining us today. Yes. Martin is three months old. Almost four months. He might have opinions. He might speak up. (laughs) He's a very opinionated baby. Actually, he's much chiller than my older kid. I'm wondering if it's too early to notice that sort of birth order psychology. (laughs) Yeah, there's the opinions. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to say, like... My older kid's going through a thing because he's two and a half. It's not necessarily what his personality is going to be like forever. I mm-hmm. hope not. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have another fun Eddie tells a Eddie book story. Okay. He's now started taking grown-up books off the shelf and asking me to read them. Uh, most recently, uh, The Rape of Locke. Yeah. Oh. I can't remember who wrote that. I didn't read it yet. And also Moby Dick, and because it has a whale. 
And but oh, I think I tweeted this too. He wanted the top hat mustache book, which yes. was Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie, <laughs> which actually I'm reading right now. So I just read him part of it, but he got bored. Do you want to start it this time? The only book I've read since we last chatted is a little thing. The cover says a novel, but I think I'm going to quibble with that. Okay. It's a book called Literally Show Me a Healthy Person by Darcy Wilder. And um, it's a slight thing. It's 97 pages. And uh, it's it's definitely a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure what to call it. Paper and words? <laughs> like, it, it says a novel on the front, which I feel like is an assertion. Because it's comprised not of chapters, not of scenes, but of a bunch of fragments, some of which are only a short sentence, some of which are a short paragraph, only a very few of which take up a page. Like, I'm just going to open up a page at random here. Let's say this one here. And this page has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine fragments on it. Sometimes they chain together, like one will sort of respond to the previous one, or they'll all sort of cluster around some sort of anecdote or fact. Uh, but other times they're just sort of random observations. It feels very much like a Twitter book. A book that is informed by a Twitter aesthetic, or the idea that sort of you can have a cloud of a thousand or so of these fragments, and that if you ingest them all at once, it'll sort of... It's like a pointillist technique. You know pointillism where it's like yeah. you get up close to the painting and it's a bunch of dots and you step back and it sort of becomes a picture? It's, it's like these fragments are dots. So um, I don't know if I liked this book or not, and I don't know if I liked the technique or not, but I spent a lot of time on Twitter and that sort of hyperactive... Sometimes very ephemeral, sometimes very uh, superficial, but sometimes just really shockingly cutting very, very deep, very, very quickly, which is something I like about Twitter. Yeah, I like the Twitter style of writing for what it is. Mm -hmm. Like, I love, somebody described when they were increasing the word count, Twitter as being a series of thesis statements. Yeah. Because because of the length restriction, you only have time for, like, one idea, very succinctly stated. And I think there's a real value into that. But I don't know if that makes a novel. <laughs> like, I think as being a writer, I think being on Twitter is great practice for um, economy of language and, like, making your expressions punchier and, like, really asking yourself does this phrase need to be here? How is the best way for me to express this? Like, it's a challenge, but, you know, and it's a restriction, but these things are good for creativity and good for honing technique. Yeah, when I was writing my most recent dissertation, I was definitely getting bogged down in too long and complicated sentences. I kind of I consciously did that a few times. It was like, okay, what if I had to tweet this concept? That really helped one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this book is that it not only is this sort of formally very interesting piece, I guess it's a novel. It really doesn't feel like a novel. It feels like a character study, I guess, is because it's doing, it's, it's very 
younger millennials. Like, me and you are, like, old millennials. Very old millennials. The writer of this book, and it it doesn't feel like fiction. Uh, it says a novel. I should probably give it the benefit of the doubt and say it is fiction. But the, the title character, as far as I can tell, seems to be a person quite similar to the author. Someone born in 1990, someone who spent their entire life in New York, someone who seems to have a very, like... I'm I'm drunk and having a lot of casual sex and going to a lot of parties in Brooklyn, and I am 27. Like, it feels very much like that. Well, that's like Hemingway's novels. I mean, mm-hmm. they're all about Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing is that it's it sort of starts off with this very sort of engaging, like, Twittery kind of style, where you're sort of getting this idea of, like, okay, you're like a hipster party uh, person, and you're uh, having these misadventures with other hipster party people, and then, like, you'll get something about how her mom died of cancer, and, like, going to Sloan Kettering, and, like, hospice care, and all that stuff, and then it's back to sort of, like, I took, I took Plan B four times this year. How much can you take Plan B before it wrecks you? Like, things like that. It's sometimes kind of funny. Uh, well, in a way that I find funny. Like, there's, um, at one point, there's this one little fragment that muses, maybe the difference between happy people and sad people is whether the mother climaxed during conception or not. Huh. <laughs> Which I found funny. <laughs> what if, say, you use artificial insemination? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> I don't know. Because I'm thinking back to stirrups again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every um, every episode I'll talk about being in stirrups. <laughs> that'll that'll be our thing. But yeah, like there's a lot of heavier stuff in here. And um the most arresting bit is about midway through, like you've learned as time goes by that like her mom died when she was, I believe, fourteen from a fairly shitty form of cancer. Not that any cancer is good, but this one's particularly bad. And uh, there's just an email from her where she had been sort of hiding her symptoms and the extent of how bad it was from her teenage daughter. And it's email is dated from 2007. And it's just like, I had emailed mom asking, are you okay? And this is the email she sent back. And it takes up about three pages. And boy, is she not okay. <laughs> like, it's detailing her symptoms and how the drugs are making her sick and the drugs are themselves causing problems, but she can't go off the drugs and this, that, and the other thing. It's... It's awful. <laughs> and uh, then it's sort of back to, like, like I saw my friend Tom, who thinks we had sex on Molly, but I don't think that was Molly, and I don't think that was sex. <laughs> like I said, it's a character study. It's it's the sense of a person who's been badly traumatized and is in the process of processing it. And um, there's no feeling of conclusion at the end. It feels like it ends around the same place it begins. It's just sort of like spending a couple of hours with this person who has a fairly funny wild life and some damage. It sounds almost like a diary. Yes, very much. Or a therapy exercise. Mm-hmm. But does that mean it has value for a reader? I don't know. Like, uh, I, I, I'm not going to say I love this book, and I don't know that I would recommend it to people. I do think it's interesting if you are interested in new forms of writing. It's probably worth looking into. And if you're interested in spending time in that milieu. Yeah. And maybe this is a function of age, but I'm cu- I finding I'm increasingly impatient mm-hmm. 
with self-destructive characters. Fair. Up to a point, you know what I mean? Like, it, it depends how it's written. It depends why they're making the choices. But I feel like you've got a whole bunch of, like, Lena Dunham-style characters where it's just like, I'm making bad decisions because no reason at all. I'm selfish. Or- well... I mean, it's easy to pathologize in this case, especially because the title of the book is literally Show Me a Healthy Person, which kind of implies that there is no such thing as a healthy person. And but there can be. <laughs> and I'm not being judgy. I'm trying not to be judgy. But if, you know, you know you're not doing what is good for you for no good reason, like, try to build, work on yourself. <laughs> On the second to last page, it's kind of um, describing interactions with her therapist. And it feels like, I'm wondering how much of this book is kind of a self-defense mechanism. Um, Because it does this thing where it will allow, the character will allow herself to be very vulnerable and reveal some very harrowing things, experiences that are very dark and and painful and then we'll sort of like immediately sort of pull back and like squirt out an ink cloud of like um more superficial um ironic distancing things almost as if to create a quick distance between the painful thing that was just said and herself yeah that's kind of almost what i was talking about with lena dunham because lena dunham like says all these things she hates about herself and then she pivots quickly and doesn't follow up. I don't know why I'm on Lena Dunham right now. But. <laughs> New York. I don't know. New this York, is a, young millennial, something like that. This is a very New York book. Um, and Lena Dunham, I think of as being very New York. The other thing that drew me to this as I was reading it is something that I've been thinking about. And this is something that isn't a new thread for me, but it's the idea that queer people go through kind of a delayed adolescence, often in their 30s or 40s, when they're sort of able to, um, because you're not able to when you are 19 years old. Um, Yeah, I read or heard something with trans people about that too, about how a lot of um, trans women have really bad style for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> because they're mentally almost like dressing like they're 13 year old girls. You know, it's, it's learning, you know? Exactly. Yeah. It's, there's, there's a technique to it. And I mean, I certainly can remember the sort of slow process of learning how to present as the kind of masculinity I wanted to present um, and, you know, you, you make overcorrections and misadjustments in your personal style until you sort of realize, no, th- these are the kinds of clothes I like to wear. This is the kind of beard I like to have. These are the kinds of glasses that suit my face, things like that. Yeah. Um, as, as a friend of yours for a long time, and you can cut this out if it's, it seems too personal, but I've seen you change a lot, but I'm not always sure if you're changing who you are or just changing how you present. Mm. And I mean, <laughs> that's true of everyone. Like, I'm sure you've seen me change in a number of ways as well. Mm-hmm. But I've noticed sometimes you'll say something or do something and I'll feel like 
that's not like the Michael I used to know, but maybe it is too, you know? Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. And it's, it's such a question as to like (laughs) what the difference between presentation and sort of the, you know, the air quotes authentic self is. And then like, well, you know, people do change over time and we've known each other for longer than we haven't known each other now. Oh, that's weird. I know, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) But, um, absolutely. Like I feel, and I I do tie this into being gay, but I don't, I mean, you know, maybe people who aren't some, some people who've lived very sort of contained and, um, self-denying sort of, uh, childhoods and youths, uh, might be able to relate to this, but I didn't really feel sort of comfortable being myself until I was 30, mm-hmm. maybe 31. And, and then you sort of, I, I had to learn what that self was and what I wanted to do with it. You know? Yeah. I, I feel like that might in a lesser way be true for everyone. I definitely got a lot more comfortable with myself at around 30 but on the other side I started dating boys when I was about 14 and everyone was fine with that you know like it wasn't obviously you did not start dating until you were a young adult Um, well not obviously but you you didn't yeah yeah (laughs) I I mean certainly in in the late 90s if you were able to be out in high school, you went to a very special high school or you yourself were a very special person. Like, yeah. I remember around like first year university when people start cu- started coming out. Like a few of them you always kind of knew. Although I don't think I knew you, but I'd only met you a couple times at that point. Yeah. And I, I was in the process of coming out to my friends when we met. Like I started coming out at the end of high school. I think now, I hope now it's more common for, for young people to be out. So that can... You know, they can make their normal teenage mistakes when they're teenagers. Yeah. It's so weird, though, because, like, I can remember, I I came out to my friends, I came out to my family, uh, all throughout my 20s, I was nominally out, you know, that was my official status. I wasn't in the closet, but I was still not allowing myself to live a lifestyle that like interested me in in or or felt satisfying in that way it's something i'm glad i have the ability the emotional and social resources to do now because it's exciting and fun and interesting um and it takes a certain maturity to do it in a way that's not going to feel sort of off the rails which i think is why it's sort of better to do that when you're in your 30s and you have sort of more of a psychological bedrock and it's not sort of a cry for, it's not it's not self-harming it's not a cry for help it's kind of like no no we're going to be responsible adults <laughs> like that's more or less what i have for my book like it's it's i'll say it again it's by darcy wilder it's literally show me a healthy person a novel it says on the back, it's a book of aphorisms and short texts in the vein of Fernando Pessoa, if Pessoa grew up on Blink-182 and found his voice on Twitter and had come in his tights. So, right. there you go. Like, <laughs> uh, and uh, her, her Twitter account, uh, this is the, the bio on the back, Darcy Wilder, born 1990, is the Twitter account at 33333333433333. Those are all numerals. So, <laughs> 
So there you go. Honestly, this person sounds exhausting. <laughs> I don't think you would like this, Emily. Just, I am, maybe I'm in a mood right now. <laughs> I am not recommending this book to you at all. <laughs> I don't regret having read it. And I think if if this doesn't sound exhausting to you and you see it, maybe pick it up and open up like a random page and see how it strikes you maybe a younger person could get Mm. more out of it maybe maybe there's definitely books that you should read at different times of your life oh yeah absolutely my go-to for that is always mrs dalloway because i read it in the last year of my undergraduate for a class and it was like oh this is fun and then i read it again a few years later and it just devastated me so catcher in the rye is mine i find people who read it when they're teenagers like it but adults don't. No, I, I didn't read it as a teenager. I read it when I was 22 to help tutor high school students who had it. Uh, and oh boy, did I not like it. <laughs> yeah, well, again, same thing. Holden is exhausting. Holy crap, is he ever. <laughs> it's the best time for this shit when you're a grown-up. Yep. <laughs> but when you're 14 and you're 15 and you hate phonies. So what book do you have? I read two and a half books. I read, and it's weird because I like them both, but I'm not terribly excited about either. I read uh, Transcription by uh, Kate Atkinson, and that was about a Second World War MI5 uh, agent. You know, a young girl. This is actually a topic I'm really into. Okay. um, How spy agencies would hire very young women ostensibly as uh, secretaries, but would have them doing code breaking or some espionage. So that was fun. That was good. And then I read The Wife by Meg Wolitzer. Now, Meg Wolitzer is one of my favorite writers of the last couple of years. Um, Her last few books were uh, The Interestings, there was The Uncoupling, and the female persuasion. The the interestings and the female persuasion were both really super timely. The interestings is about a group of now 30, 40 somethings who were talented, gifted teenagers and were really like really on their own hype. But the only ones who actually achieved anything were the ones who had family money. Yeah. The rest, you know, became <laughs> normal people and not maybe this maybe not as interesting as they thought they were. And the female persuasion was about a fourth wave feminist who got to work for a Gloria Steinem type, like a seventies feminist. Yeah. And uh, found her falling short on intersectionality and was really disappointed in her. So that's the kind of writing Meg Walitzer does. The Wife is an older book. It's about 10 years old. And I've read it because um, it's a movie now starring Glenn Close, who will probably win the Oscar for her uh, for her portrayal. I haven't seen the movie. This keeps happening to me. I keep reading books because I want the movie I want to read it before the movie comes out. Yeah. And then I don't get to see the movie. Is it is it just like difficult to get like a sitter or a uh, bit of both. Well, it's it, you know what movies are like in St. John's. Yes. Yeah. Aquaman's on five screens. Oh my god. <laughs> is that just cuz Jason whatever his face is like spends time in Newfoundland and I think it's about a, a bunch of things. I mean, they they get good movies in for like a week, mm-hmm. and they have 
I love this. I, I suppose they have it other places. On Wednesday mornings at 10 a.m., they'll show a movie for nursing mops. Oh, wow. Like, they don't turn the lights down all the mm-hmm. way. They don't have the volume up all the way. And they have change tables. And everyone just, like, spreads out with their boobs out and nurses their baby. That's a great idea. It is, yeah. I saw the favorite last week. It was so good. That's really good. I have no idea if that's done yeah. also, but oh, that's it's great. Amazing. If uh, yeah, it's Cineplex, so I and that's a huge chain, so they probably do it other places. Yeah. But it's uh, if it's not a Stars and Strollers, I pretty much don't get to see it. <laughs> and the wife didn't come here at all. This this is the thing that I think maybe listeners who aren't from a place like Newfoundland might not be able to appreciate. It's yeah. Toronto, like, you can see whatever you want. Yeah, it's like it's very limited, and um, like the next largest city, you have to get into a plane to get to, like you, or or like on a on a boat. And that's still a two like a two day drive yeah, plus yeah. the boat. You're not going to go to Halifax to watch a movie, like unless you feel like spending five hundred dollars and two days to like see a movie, like yeah. And then you can buy it on streaming, but not till later, like yeah. One thing I've always liked to do is see as many Oscar movies as I can mm-hmm. before they come out, and I have seen The Favorite, and that's it. <laughs> so, The Wife. Yeah, The Wife. So, this is, it is very good and very compelling. Um, I should say now I am going to spoil the okay. ending, All right. but it, I think you can see it coming. Like, it's officially a twist, but it's it's in the text. Okay. Basically, this is about an older woman, I guess roughly Glenn Close's age, who's the wife of a great modern writer. And mm-hmm. it picks up on the flight to Finland. Okay. Um, he's winning a fictional award that's basically the Nobel Prize for Literature. Sure. Which I know is in Sweden, but this is Finland because it's fictional. That seems like a cute way to fictionalize it. Next country over. Go on. Anyway, it's, it's, she's on the plane when she decides to leave her husband after the ceremony. It, it looks back over their life and his career and her lack of career. And she thinks about all the ways she supported him, all the things she sacrificed for him, all his infidelities, her various humiliations that she suffered. It was a relationship that started. He was her English professor. She was his creative writing student with a lot of promise. He was married. They had an affair. They wound up being together, all very cliche, which she acknowledges and is embarrassed by. He, he grew in, in fame and stature, and she was his wife. She was the person um, reporters would cozy up to, to try to, you know, get the key interview. She would be at the dinner parties. She would be at the awards shows, all this sort of thing. Not award shows, you know, literary awards. Mm. And the spoilery surprise twist is that she wrote all his books. Like I say, you see it coming because she has all this promise as a writer. And she loves writing. She really loves writing. But she has this startling run-in with an older female writer when she's young. And this woman is... a a lonely, sad sort of failure because she's never taken seriously. And it's it starts out 
sort of as a compromise between them. He's got the personality of the writer and the love of literature, but no talent. Mm. And she has the talent, but does not believe that she'd be taken seriously. So over the course of their marriage, they write about a dozen books and he, you know, he gets all the accolades. It ends with her confronting him. She's going to leave. She's going to tell his unofficial biographer that she wrote the books. He's kind of sniffing. There's a couple people who seem to suspect this already because his early short stories were were no good. But he dies. He has a heart attack in Finland, and she just lets it go. And it's, on the one hand, it's very unsatisfying, but it's also kind of understandable. Like, I think it's a normal thing for a woman who's been supporting someone a long time Mm -hmm. to just continue that. Yeah. And that's it. Like, obviously, we, as a reader, we want her to make the big stand. But you get why she doesn't. And mm-hmm. also, it would be hard once he was once he was dead because she might not be able to prove it or, you know, it might look grasping. Mm-hmm. So she decides to just quietly be the widow of the great writer. Is this... What you're talking about, about how like a woman has been supporting like a man for a long time, doing uh, you know, all kinds of labor, emotional, in this case creative, um, things like that, material labor. Um, and then the sort of the unwillingness to upset that. Is it is it just because like it'll sort of detonate the whole life? That's like the structure of life will be like th- thrown into chaos and that's I don't a scary even thing think or that's- quite it for her because her children are grown at least one or two of their three children kind of know she you know she lives alone there's not much she could lose at this point for that it's it's just sort of you get used to a certain way of living i think a certain set of circumstances it's interesting because there's more and more talk about wives of great men and the work they do, editing their papers or helping with their research, yeah. and whether they get acknowledged or not. I know someone who is very proud of his academic record in the 70s and 80s. But not only was his wife typing his papers, she actually did a fair bit of editing. Mm-hmm. And that makes you wonder, okay, how much... like. Because a paper is graded, not just on the ideas, but also how clean it is. Yeah. So if she was doing that, like, what would the grade have been without her? Yeah. Kind of a thing. Yeah. I mean, when I was when I was grading academic papers, like, you, you primarily grade on content, but you can't give it the strong A if it's not, you know, well executed in every regard. Exactly. And this, you know, this is the sort of thing. When a white, a lot of... A lot of men, academics, scientists, writers, had wives who supported and helped them. But at what point is that a help and what point is that a collaboration? Yeah. In this case, he would often come up with the idea of what he wanted to write. Mm-hmm. And she would kind of write it. And it this was especially bad because he, in some cases, 
these were about his affairs. Oh, wow. Yeah, he, he would write about an older man who met, you know, a young fan and, you know, had this special encounter and that, you know, one magic night. Now, he wouldn't say that it was him, but she knew. And then she would write a novel about it. Did he know she knew? It's it's kind of unspoken, I think. Like this man obviously has way too big of an ego, but yeah. he's 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 not a monster. He's believable. You understand why she fell in love with him and why she stayed. And like for a long time, she got a lot out of this because she was enjoying the accolades he was receiving. It's mm-hmm. not until they're towards the end of their lives, like she's wondering what was it all for. You know, I'm. 70 now and nobody ever knows what i did and also that it's more modern times and she's seeing young female writers getting the respect she never thought she could get why don't we talk about how we pick books okay and like and also like how about not being excited about books. Neither of us were t- were super excited to talk about these books. Yeah. Like, the last two times, I really wanted to tell people about Kaylin Moran's books, because she, she, everyone needs to read her. Mm-hmm. And I was excited to talk about the Penelope Ed, too, because I knew you and I disagreed, and we could talk about it and flesh it out. But neither of us were like, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. Yeah. So what do we do then? Especially because you're trying to bust out of a rut, and I that am. makes it hard. Yep. Um, yep. <laughs> in, in, in this case, I, I I actually I told a little fib. I did read two books. The other book is a collection of poetry, and I just don't feel well equipped to talk about poems. So I was like, okay, I'm not going to count that one. Um, but uh, so like for me, I I really am. I don't have an agenda or a program or, or a a guiding light at this point. I picked up this book because I was in the West end on Queen West and I had a bit of time to pop into type books, which is a nice independent bookstore that's, that's out there. And I saw it on the shelf there. The cover appealed to me. I I opened it up and I read a page and it, it, it struck me as interesting. And I said, okay, this is short. I can probably get through this. Let's give it a go. And uh, that that was it. Like it, which is exactly how I selected my previous book as well. Um, yeah, you're picking books. Like you said both times, I can get through this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's actually how you should be thinking about a book. You should yeah. be thinking, I can't wait to read this. I wish there was so much more of this. Mm-hmm. I'm not faulting you. I'm faulting the books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can uh, be so hard to find the right book. So how are you picking books lately? I try to go for, like, it's partly intentionally, partly not. I tend to read books that are kind of current or maybe zeitgeisty. I like to know what the conversation is yeah. and what people are talking about. I think that's fine. Um, Way yeah. back in the day, I read The Da Vinci Code purely because I felt like I needed to have an opinion about yeah, it. Yeah, I tried. I couldn't. Ugh. Oh, but remember when I read Twilight? Yeah. <laughs> remember <laughs> You and my now husband doing dramatic reading. <laughs> you're, you're, I have a pretty good voice. Your husband has an amazing voice. So we were able to do very, very serious literary readings. Oh, those were fantastic. <laughs> I love those memories. I want, we should stage one. <laughs> uh, like I read The Wife because it's a movie now. 
yeah, I read I read Caitlin Moran because I follow her on Twitter. I just heard the ins- I just got the library notification. The Incendiaries is in. I put that on hold. I think six months ago, a few months ago, because it was on all the best of year end lists. Although this is so dumb, but the author has really obnoxious eye makeup and is kind of turning me off. <laughs> That's not a good reason not to read a book. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of against author photos for a lot of reasons. Yes. Like, yes. You should never know that these are real people. Yeah. And, I mean, I don't really care how they look. I mean, yeah. whether it's going to bias me positively or negatively, um, I'd rather not know. And honestly, the author bios. Like, if you hadn't read that that author was the same age and mm-hmm. the same circumstances of the character, you might have looked at it totally differently. Yeah. I was going to say, it's always a bit of a thing when you feel like you're reading the author's real life. Hmm. Or vice versa. Like, I read um, The Woman in the Window. This is a very timely thing, because Dan Mallory is the author of that. He was writing as A.G. Flynn, so I assumed he was a woman. Hmm. Like, the main character, the main character's a woman. And I assumed... The writer was a woman. Now, he's not in trouble for that. He's in trouble because he faked cancer. <laughs> Which is something that gets you in trouble. <laughs> it, it is. But it's also kind of, if I had known I was reading a man's perspective on a female, it might have read, it might have colored my opinion. Yeah, yeah. It's a good book. Yeah. I, I came up in, like, my academic tradition. I was big into Roland Barthes and like I was a you know good post-structuralist post-modernist etc and I was like no the the meaning the author is dead uh, I do not care about the author's biography I do not care about authorial intent I've moderated that opinion a little bit since then mm-hmm. in that you never like representation really matters yeah. who the author is what context they're writing from really super matters um but I still kind of want to default to sort of encountering the text on its own terms and like the meaning coming from the interaction between my brain and the words on the page and not sort of trying to infer something from the author's biography or something that I sort of guess about the author's identity into yeah. it. Here's so. a writer, a reader really kind of question. Cause mm-hmm. we, yeah, of course you want more diversity in your books. Um, Andy Weir, he wrote the Martian mm-hmm. and it's follow up. Artemis. I liked both. They're not great books, good, but they're very readable. He's a white dude. His main character in Artemis is, I believe, a Middle Eastern girl. Mm. Can or should white dudes or anybody really write of different gender and race? Hmm. Thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, can they? Yes. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Um, Should they? Um, With caution, I guess? Um, Thoughtfully? (laughs) So there's obviously a lot of examples of of men writing very poorly about Mm -hmm. women. And I'm sure that the reverse is true as well. But, I mean, certainly there's examples of men who can write women. I thought A.J. Flynn was a woman. Yeah. the racial thing's a bit more of a question mark and one I'm not really qualified to answer either. I think it also depends on like technical questions about the book as well. Like if you have a book that has 
by like a third person omniscient narrator uh, that sort of floats between like dozens of characters who are all different ages and genders and backgrounds, then obviously you don't want to be like, well, I'm I'm a white man and I'm doing a third person omniscient narrator, so I just have thirty white men that the narrator floats between. That would be that would be odd. <laughs> but if it's sort of like a character study where you're really honing in on one, then. I think you can still do it. You just need to do a lot of research and talk to a lot of people from the community that you're trying to write about, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, the these books I mentioned are all, like, first person. I. Um, and in some cases, like in Artemis, it's not super relevant that she's Middle Eastern because it takes place on the moon. Yeah. But it is relevant that she's female because she's very small. Yeah. And I feel like... I think... I think that there's potential criticism lying in either direction. It's like if you're if you're like a, a white dude and you only ever write about white dudes, it's gonna be like, well, he only ever writes about white dudes. And then if you're a white dude and you're like constantly sort of like appropriating the struggle and culture of non-white people and, and women and so forth, and it's like, well, he's just constantly appropriating. And I think it often is just gonna come down to how thoughtful and skilled and sensitive the depiction is like i think if if a if a white person writes about a non-white character well in a way that the people from that community don't have issue with then i don't necessarily see that it's a problem for most people it, the issue of what's the word pseudonyms too because like jk rowling famous famously you know was told to use her initials she didn't even have she doesn't have a middle name. Like, she put K in there because they didn't think boys would read Harry Potter if they knew it was written by Joanne. Yep. And A.J. Flynn, I feel like he was kind of trying to pass himself off as a woman. Yeah. Like, Dan Mallory is his name. Um, because this is one of those books in the vein of Gone Girl or female-based thrillers, which are lar- largely... Uh, marketed towards women Mm -hmm. i think so i think that was a deliberate cynical choice there there's also a case and i shouldn't speak too much because i don't know about it but there was a comic book artist who took a pseudonym that just happened to sound pretty japanese oh yeah he he was writing like a ninja comic samurai thing he. Yeah, and it's like he was like, "Oh, it's just a fake name." I just and it's like, no. "No." I mean, not knowing any other details about it and, yeah. you know, at first blush, hearsay, etc., that seems like a super bad idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you should not pass yourself off as a different race. No. Elena Ferrante is the synonym of a woman. We don't know who she actually is. I don't know if you read her books or I've heard about them. I love them. They're fabulous. Um, And very female. My favorite blurb on the back, maybe ever, but it's on the back of this one, is what if Jane Austen got angry? Ooh. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, that's that's... That's sold me more on Elena Ferrante than anything else I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, but there are those who say that it's a man writing it. Hmm. Because a woman couldn't write this well. Wow, we haven't come very far at all. I'm just thinking yeah, about the Brontes and how, like, oh, it was assumed that Wuthering Heights had to have been written by a man because no feminine brain could have conceived of something so monstrous. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on Dear Reader. My name is Michael. <laughs> uh, my name is Emily. Thank you for listening. Yeah, and you can find us on Twitter at Dear Reader FM. And you can email us at dearreader at megaphonic.fm. We'd love to hear from you. And uh, we'll see you next time. Or, we'll, well, we won't see you. Cripes. <laughs> <laughs> Audio medium. We won't medium. see or hear or anything. You'll hear <laughs> us next time. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.